Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
or people who are prohibited from going on strike should take job action. Uh, you're not allowed to say those things anymore. Um, Bill 46 is it essentially takes the, uh, it, it, what was happening was uh, the government was in negotiation with uh, a bunch of the frontline workers, right? Uh, uh, the public service, if you will. Uh, they are organized by AUP, I see some AUP members, uh, retired members in the audience playing here today. Um, so they were, are, were in bargaining. The government brought a position of zeros over uh, the course of many, uh, over three years to the bargaining table. Uh, the union said, no, not good enough. We will go to arbitration. Because these workers are prohibited from striking. But the compromise that Lockheed brought in in the 80s was that he would take away their right to strike, but if the two parties uh, uh, came to an impasse, it would be referred to an arbitrator. Now, the government scrapped that arbitration process. They said, no, you're getting these zeros. You don't like it. We just passed Bill 45, so you can't talk about that, how, how much you don't like it. Um, and they took away that arbitration process. The reason they did that is because they knew that an arbitrator would award more than zeros. Private sector wages are growing at about 3% per year, not zero. And arbitrators always look at private sector comparators and what's fair and award that. Government knew they would lose, and uh, so then they legislated this wage freeze. What it means is that the two parties are not negotiating anymore. That that old framework that we passed in, in, in the post-war era where you know, uh, the employer and the employees sit down and they hammer it out until they have a deal, that's gone for public sector workers. Not even the arbitration part uh, we get to have anymore. Now, the reason why the labor movement is so concerned about this is because that was Bill 46, and the nurses who are in negotiation right now are pretty darn convinced that when Bill 47 comes, it'll look an awful lot like that. And the health sciences, who are your lab techs and occupational therapists and other people uh, in the healthcare community, they're pretty convinced that Bill 48 is going to be that same uh, piece of legislation that simply uh, imposes an agreement on them and threatens their, their leaders and anyone else, even ordinary citizens with jail time, if they say, nope, we are going to have job action. That's the other thing about Bill 45. It's anybody in this room. If you're standing in a grocery store lineup, and the justice minister happened to be standing in front of you, and you said, I think public sector workers should go on strike for the way the government is treating them, you would be in contravention of that law. So, I mean, this, again, you know, uh, in, in our view, uh, the Federation of Labor and, and others, uh, this is it's very simple wedge politics. You know, the government can, can can paint themselves as good fiscal managers, public sector workers getting zeros, and so on. You'll note that Redford's uh, people that were published on that sunshine list don't get zeros. <laughs> you'll also note that there were hardly, of the 3,000 people on that list, there were about 50 AEP members on that list. In other words, nobody's making more than $100,000 a year. But her uh, uh, communications director's making about 250. Hi, Sean. My name is Henning Wendell. Um, concerning the rationale for the government um, wanting to do away with the pensions that you're talking about, you mentioned the one put out there that down the road we may need it. You mentioned, as counter to that, 
that it looks like it's really straight political in terms of getting votes. I'm sort of putting words in your mouth a little bit. <clears throat> what I'm wondering is, is there any attempt by the government to give any other kind of rationale other than out there we may actually need it? Of what they plan to do with the money that now they would be saving without having to pay those pensions? No, they would argue that that's up to the board and, and to invest those, you know, those pension funds. And uh, uh, no, they haven't said anything beyond there is a possible crisis. Now, I do, I do think that there might be other uh, explanations for uh, what's happening with the with the pension funds, and it's a it's part of a larger. Uh, uh, attack by the corporate sector on defined benefit pension plans uh, and public sector wages, and the two go together. Um, and that's why this pension issue, I think, dovetails nicely with bills 45 and 46. You know, the political explanation is one, but I often find it wanting, right? I mean, there's, a, there's an old saying that, you know, politics is the flesh, but economy is the bone. And, uh, and, and I think that there is an, an economic explanation that traces back to the recession. On, uh, on, on many of the attacks on these defined benefit plans. And that is this, uh, the corporate sector and, uh, and the financial sector, they lost a lot in the recession. They are starting to recover some of the, uh, the, that economic wealth, if you will. But in large part, a lot of that has been at the expense of their wage bill and their pension bill, right? They've gutted those things, particularly in the United States. So you've seen, and in Canada, you've seen a rise of, since the, the recession of more precarious labor, a lot of the employment gains that we've made um, after, you know, uh, the bottom fell out of everything in 08, 09, have been part-time, no benefits, this kind of stuff. So companies are regaining the wealth that they lost from uh, essentially gutting some of their wage and other benefit obligations. Now, one of their big competitors is the public sector. Right? The public sector has, has collective agreements, so you're going to get fair increases that, generally speaking, is the result of negotiations of a couple of percent per year. Um, and you're also going to have a defined benefit pension. That is competition for the private sector to attract and retain workers. That, especially in a time of economic instability, people are going to look to the public sector. And they're going to want uh, uh, a wage that at least somewhat keeps pace with the cost of living and at least somewhat gives some dignity in retirement. If you can chip away at the number of people that are employed in the public sector, if you can chip away the number of people who have a defined benefit pension, you're going to have less the economy-wide that are asking for it. And that is why you see front groups like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation continually <laughs> assaulting this idea of public sector workers having lavish pensions, right? That's why you see the Canadian Federation of Independent Business continually talking about how onerous pension obligations are on employers or how we couldn't possibly raise the CPP by $4 a week for your average worker. Um, that is why there is just a continual buzz, a static in the business press about the unsustainability of the public sector and so on. It's because it represents competition and what we and if what you want to do is drive down wages and working conditions flood the market labor market with temporary foreign workers to help you do that and and and, and gut your wage bill and and so that you can 
transfer it over to profits. You can go gamble it away in the, in, in the financial sector, which is what almost every company wants to do. Then that's going to be your strategy. So, of course, they're going to put pressure on their friends in government to make that a reality. Uh, thank you very much, Shannon. First of all, I want to... Me? Frank. Everybody Frank. knows you're Frank, Frank. but... <laughs> Frank J. Todd. I had to put the initial in there. Oh. But it, 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 I want to abuse laurels to the selection committee for finally inviting speakers with your caliber. We've got to... You know, the word... The, uh, the slogan that dynamite comes in small packages has got to be really emphasized. <laughs> yes, bless you. Anyway, a uh, uh, little bit of bragging. I was an organizer for the UNWFA, the mine workers, and I was the youngest hospital board member, they tell me, they told me at the age of 22. Now, we got nothing for being running the healthcare system, can you tell us how many executives and, and, and top echelon people making fortunes are there in the healthcare system today? I can't tell you the exact number, but now apparently you can go to that sunshine list. <laughs> and, uh, apparently they are going to put AHS on that list. Um, and, you know, I, uh, on the one hand, it, it does please me greatly to read the employment contract of Ms. Redford's chief of staff and her director of communications and all her spin doctors, right? I, I don't even know, I read her, her director of communications uh, contract, I, I often needle him on Twitter, so it pleased me to look at his conditions of employment, which were now posted on the internet. He makes about, as base pay, 16000 a month, and I just have to wonder, like, how do you even have time to spend it? Um, because I, I, I just, I got nothing. I mean, <laughs> but, uh, uh, at the same time, you know, a lot of this stuff is, is, I mean, no, she should not be paying her, her assistance as much as, you know, like, as if she's some sort of royalty. But, you know, I, 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 I worry of all of this, you know, sort of, uh, glare of transparency, quote-unquote, on politicians, you know, the $16 glass of orange juice and all of this kind of stuff. I, I worry that what that does is turns people off of their elected and politicians all told and acts as a vote suppression mechanism. And I, I think that that is true. I've knocked on a lot of doors, not just in you know, this uh, a, a city, but, you know, across the country working as an organizer. And people... At some point, they just think, well, they're all crooked, and I can't possibly engage in this system. I can't change it. None of those people will ever change. And look, they're just entitled, and they're buying $16 glasses of orange juice. And so I, I worry about that. And you notice that it's, it's the right who feeds that beast, right? Uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the CFI, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the Fraser Institute, all of those right-wing think tanks are the ones who are generating a lot of that information, and I, and and what it is is it, it essentially amounts to vote suppression. Um, it makes people stay home, and and so on the one hand, I think it's good that we all now know that Barack Obama's chief of staff makes about half of the amount of money as Premier Redford's. 
Um, I think that's good because this kind of entitlement in Alberta, enough already. Um, and that's, that's what happens when you have a 40-year-old government, right? Um, and, uh, but at the same time, I think what we really need to be doing is looking at the bigger giveaways, which is not a $16 glass of orange juice, but the billions that are leaving our province in royalties and foregone corporate tax revenues. That's the real problem here, the reason why we can't fund a decent healthcare system. Uh, I have a question, uh, and it grows out of uh, some conversation we had here at the table. Shannon was sharing about the, the research that, they, that had been done by the Labour Coalition, and part of it was focus groups, and she shared some interesting information about uh, CPP and so on from Calgary. So could you expand a little bit, tell some people what you shared at our table? Sure. I mean, whenever we undertake a really big campaign like this, and this one's complicated, right, because of the, what I was talking about, politics of envy. So we wanted to get the message right. So we went out into the field with, with a poll, and then from there we did a couple of sets of focus groups in Edmonton and Calgary. This is pretty standard operating procedure anytime you're, you're undertaking a big campaign. And the, it was really interesting to me in the Calgary focus group, we, well, in both of them, we, we split people into kind of uh, the 30 to 50 range, right? So sort of, uh, you know, my age being right in the middle, you know, sort of late 30s, early 40s. Um, and then we had another group of kind of 55 plus, 50, 55 plus. And when the 55 plus group in Calgary came in, I thought that we would be getting quite a high level of sort of retirement income literacy from people. But it was not the case, and it was shocking to me. Some people didn't know, well, many people didn't know that whether CPP was, was uh, provincial or federal, whether they would get it. They didn't know the difference between OAS and CPP. Um, they didn't realize that CPP was tied to their, whatever they had paid in, uh, in their workplace, and OAS was, you know, the universal social entitlement, old age security. Um, and, and more than that, they had no idea, and these were people who were in the LAPP or in other pension plans, had no idea that they were in those pension plans. And, and, and they were really close to retirement, <laughs> they were 55 plus, you think? But what was interesting to me is that the younger group in Calgary had a, and, and you would think that younger people, oh, they don't know anything about anything, right? <laughs> this is the sort of popular um, uh, myth out there that, you know. Uh, but the younger group had quite a high level of, of pension and savings fund literacy. And, and my, my theory after watching all this, of course, we're behind the, you know, the two-way glass, right? Just watching all this go on, the focus group person is leading all through it. My theory was that because people of my generation, I'm 38, have grown up with almost zero chance at a workplace pension, right? And only if you're a nurse or a teacher do you, do you have a workplace pension anymore. We are told from a very uh, from day one, you need to save, you need to do this. And whether or not we do it is quite another story, but we know that we're on our own. Whereas in that older demographic, you know, there's sort of some vague thing in the back of people's minds, oh yeah, I'll be taken care of, right? Because that was the sort of post-war compromise. And for some of those people, it was true, but for some of them, it wasn't. They had nothing except for OAS and a bit of CPP. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, that's good that people of my generation realize that they're not going to be as well off as people of many of the people in this room. 
but at the same time, people are much, much more retirement insecure. And that retirement security, that 55 plus crowd, made for sort of an illiteracy, right? which was interesting. I'm Beth from Thank you so much, Shannon. I liked Frank Toth's description of you. Very nice. <clears throat> uh, we're talk you're talking quite a bit about attack the attack on freedom of speech, and uh, especially in uh, Bill 45. This is this is terribly frightening. It, we could go. We, there's such an infringement infringement on what we would like to see in public. Um, you also mentioned that the that there were no union reps on the LAPP and PSPP boards. Um, this increasing lack of public involvement on boards, this this increasing lack of our ability to impact boards in Alberta. Um, how can we change that? Because this this seems to be part of that whole erosion of democracy, the attack on democracy. And um, I'd just like to know what you think about how we could change it. Before I do, before you answer, I have to make an ad. And that is, tonight, from 7 to 9 at Markham Hall, you can hear the brightest of the bright at the University of Lethbridge speaking on freedom of speech. And uh, I would invite you to come. OK, Shannon, your concerns. Well, uh, yeah, uh, tonight people should go and check that out. Uh, my friend Abby Morningbull is uh, one of the uh, semi-finalists, and uh, we'd be good for people to go and support her. She is amazing. Um, but, uh, okay, um, well, the good news for starters is that uh, as for representation of the public on boards and so on, I think I, I'm always of the view that, you know, if there, if there is a position, people should run for it. And I mean, as many socialists as possible should insinuate themselves into uh, the workings of our democracy, whether that's the Municipal Planning Commission or, or elsewhere that, uh, you know, uh, uh, progressive people uh, need to make themselves heard. Uh, because you can bet that the corporate sector makes themselves heard. Maybe not. They don't waste their time on boards. They just give money. But, uh, you know, they have money, we have the many, right? <laughs> so there's that. Um, but uh, the other thing about Bill 45, you know, it sounds really scary and terrible. The good news is, is that the courts are not going to stand for it. Uh, not 45 or 46. Um, a very similar thing was tried in BC uh, by the Campbell government in 2002. Uh, and the Supreme Court slapped them down hard in 2007. And then they tried it again yeah. with the uh, teachers' negotiations BC did, and two weeks ago the Supreme Court or the BC Supreme Court slapped them down even harder, and gave them hundreds of millions in fines for essentially what they did is that they introduced a piece of legislation. The court said no, nope, and then they introduced the same piece of legislation again, and then fought it through the courts, right, to get them kind of through the political crisis, and the court fined them for that kind of political cynicism, as well they should. Um, because this is the playbook of right-wing governments. Now they do things that they know are completely illegal, and, and uh, there have been, you know, there's a lot of case law around collective bargaining and so on, I won't bore you with the detail. But they, they do these things because it'll get them through that political moment, right? With no view to how injurious this is to industrial relations and, and overall uh, uh, a climate of, of, of uh, you know, uh, 
the conditions of work and benefits and so on for workers. Uh, and so um, I think that uh, this government will pay a price for these pieces of legislation. And I think we need to call them on it and say, look, you would rather pay lawyers than the people who cleaned up the floods a decent wage. Like, this is just so cynical um, that, uh, you know, it just does great injury, I think, to the body politic when you treat the political process with such contempt. You know, it's, and, and, and you just are not even honest when you come to the table anymore. I mean, people elect you to do a job. You should have some respect for it, in my view. that are just even in their 20s. I'm talking to people that are 50 now, and they're aware of this. And uh, So I'd like something about uh, the timelines. I've been, a, I've been a, a political junkie for a long time, but I've been fairly <laughs> suppressed of late, so I'm not cooling in on this uh, as specifically as I should have been. But what is the timeline for this? And also, as a retiree, what are the implications other than, I think I heard you say, maybe the loss of the COLA. Okay, I'll address that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, if they get away with this, they will bring it in for any service after 2016. So um, if you're close to retirement or early retirement now, um, the municipalities in particular are really worried about a sort of wave of retirement, so that the people who are just about at their 85 factor um, to get out now, right? That's the loss of a lot of senior staff. Um, so it's any service that you accumulate after 2016 that this applies to, uh, and and similarly with the with the cola. Now for current retirees, uh, your cola stays the same, but um, that cap on contribution limits might be the thing that eventually hurts current retirees, because if, for example, the bottom falls out of the global economy. Um, and you know, this is capitalism, that never happens. Um, but uh, if it does, um, and you know, there are uh, pension funds in the last recession had to increase uh, contributions slightly in order to make up for the unfunded liability, right? So it, with this hard cap on contributions, what will happen is if that fund starts to become unstable, or if a lot of people start pulling their money out, um, it will be future retirees whose, whose benefits are clawed back first, but if that's not enough, they'll have to look at, at, at current retirees. There's just no other way around it, right? So that it may affect current retirees, but yes, it's, it, it's those people who are right on the cusp of the 85 factor uh, for whom this is going to uh, have a great impact, and uh, and certainly people in physically demanding jobs are paying attention to that. Um, and it, it, the other folks that are really worried about this is people who employ senior managers in the municipalities, right? Because uh, you know who are in that fifty odd range, right? These are people who have a great deal of service expertise and so on. Um, municipalities already have a hard time keeping these people relative to the private sector. 
you know, AHS and school boards to a lesser extent, they don't really buy the argument as much that there's going to be an attraction, recruitment, and retention problem. But the municipalities are very worried about that. And I think we should all be worried about that. I would like to think that, that uh, um, you know, the accounting and the planning and so on uh, of my city is done by competent individuals and they are being paid properly for their services. Terry Shellington, thank you, Shannon, for being here. Uh, I, I, uh, I have some curiosity about the debate around the Canada Pension Plan, and I wonder if you'd comment on that <clears throat> federally, because it's a federal issue. Federally, the Conservative Party, I think, is on record as opposing it, and I believe the NDP is on the other side of that discussion. Uh, I'm curious where the labor uh, movement stands, but I'm also curious in your polling whether uh, people uh, in the 30s and 40s have they been polled about uh, what, what what their view of it is and whether they'd be prepared to pay that money and uh, as well for the uh, 55 and older? What the polling tells you. Hang on, I'll this, get my iPad. This will be the last question. I'll start to answer the question and see if I can pull up some polling numbers. Um, now, the uh, Canadian Labour Congress has a position that the CPP should be expanded, um, the employer side and the employee side. Um, to the tune of, if you make $50,000 a year, about $4 a week. And that would uh, essentially lead to a doubling of one's benefits because of the way that the CPP is, is pooled and managed. Um, our argument, or the, the labor movement's argument, uh, is that you know, increasing those contributions would mean a more, uh, a more universal, better system of, of, of CPP, of, uh, essentially making up for the fact that many people do not have a workplace pension anymore. Um, and it would strengthen that leg of the stool. I know I see Inga here. Anybody who has, has uh, uh, ever done any sort of financial planning, your financial planner will tell you, you know, there's three legs of the stool, right? There's OAS, there's CPP, and then there's whatever uh, workplace pension or your private savings. Um, and so that's been the Canadian Labor Congress's position for several years. Um, and uh, uh, we share that position. Uh, I would personally also like to see an increase in the insurable amount, right? Uh, you only contribute on your earnings up to about $50,000. There's a cap. Uh, I think it would be better if that was a little higher. Um, but uh, the CLC has taken more modest, the Canadian Labor Congress, more modest, modest position, seeing as they're trying to win something right, to actually get the, the job done. Um, and uh, just in terms of, I'm going to find the polling here. Uh, we did some polling, and uh, the last time the CPP expansion was on the table was at a, 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 a provincial finance minister's meeting in 2010. It was in Kananaskis. And at that time, Ted Morton was the finance minister, and we had just done a round of lobbying of the provincial government. And there was a justice minister named Alison Redford that I went to meeting with. And I was like 80 months pregnant. And I waddled in, and we talked about it for a little while, and she was readying her leadership bid, right? And of course, Ted Morton was her big rival. And so she told us that, uh, you know, a lot of work had been done on CPP expansion in Alberta before Ted Morton became finance minister. And for sure, you know, she was going to get to work on it and revive that work, and it would all be great. Um, so... Okay, here we are. Uh, they just scuttled CPP expansion. Uh, Alberta's the only holdout. But around that time, we did some polling, and we found that 60% of Albertans said they felt insecure about their retirement. 
Uh, 76% felt that, uh, of Albertans felt that the CPP's maximum annual payout of about 11,000 was too low. 63% of Albertans supported the concept of expanding the CPP. And 71% of Albertans said the Alberta government should get out of the way and allow changes to the CPP. This was in the field in 2010, so people were uh, quite keenly aware, I think, of what they had lost in their RSPs at that time, right? People were starting to get their statements from the uh, big meltdown of 0809 and seeing how much they lost and looking to that public sector option. So, I mean, the polling's pretty clear. There was just a poll that was released of employers uh, a couple weeks ago, some of them now, and uh, half of them said that, you know, we should be doing something about the CPP or some other kind of portable vehicle for people. Well, Shannon, lots to think about and lots of good information. Let's give her a hand for coming here today.